through this chapter, John chapter 4, and I would ask that you pray for me. I'm kind of going old school today. My laptop cable is at Covenant Village, and my computer died, and I got no notes, and we're just going old school today. So uh, I, I may have to make a trip either back to Covenant Village or, or Amazon Prime is probably the quicker, but, but Emeka's bag's up there, so Emeka, maybe I'll get your bag when I get my uh, cable. We're like a bunch of guys, you know, we forget a bunch of stuff. I mean, the ladies would have gone through and like done a clean sweep of every room and, you know, and I told people before I left, the most common thing that you're going to forget is your, um, your cell phone uh, attachment into the wall. You know, that, that's the number one thing that's forgotten. Well, I forgot my computer cable. That's pretty important. When I got home, it was at 4% and quickly died. So um, that's okay. So we're going to walk through John chapter 4 here. And the point of this is to see the love that Jesus has that would win our hearts, but also to see what is so beautiful about this chapter. Why is this chapter such a favorite story? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This in Luke 15. I love the story of Jesus' encounter. I mean, if you had to say, what's, the best, what's one of the best chapters in the whole Bible on missions? Right here. Cross-cultural missions. How about a short-term mission trip? I mean, the disciples are not prepared. They're unpacked, probably, for this extra two-day stay that they're going to stay in Samaria, of which they can't even touch anything in Samaria without becoming unclean, according to their traditions. They have no dealings. That means no handlings with anything that's Samaritan. We can't touch any of your cups. We can't even come into your house. And they're going to stay there for two days. I mean, Jesus is going to turn the world upside down in this. So it's, a, it's the, like the best picture on missions, best picture on short-term missions, best, best chapter on worship and how do we worship. And, you know, she's got this where question and Jesus is going to answer with a, with a how and a who and doesn't really answer her question the way she wants it answered. But it's also the best chapter on love. And how Jesus breaks all of these barriers. He's going to just cross over all of these uh, cultural barriers, the stigmas, the stereotypes. And he's going to love this woman. And she's just going to be changed uh, forever. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So just to give you a word picture, and I don't have nice slides for you this morning like Ben would have for you, but um, you probably have one on your, on your Bible page, but the idea is that they're heading north. You got Jerusalem down here, and you got Galilee way up here, and in between is, is Samaria. And right there is Mount, Mount uh, Gerizim. That's where Sychar is, and that's where this encounter is going to take place. But, and right along over here to the east, many miles over, would be the Jordan River, and it's running up towards the Sea of Galilee. At the top, Dead Sea at the bottom, and the people would actually, the Jews, because they wouldn't have any dealings with Samaritans, they would go all the way over and cross the Jordan River and then head north and then cross the Jordan River again. And so they would actually cross the Jordan River twice just to avoid because they had no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus says that he had to pass through Samaria. 
He's on a mission. And the word here that's used is this Greek word, day. And it's a significant word in the Gospel of John. It's the word that means must, or it is necessary. You must be born again. It is necessary. He must go through Samaria. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in. It's necessary. I will bring them into one fold. So it's a big word. And what he's saying here is, I must go through Samaria because they don't know about the mission that Jesus has for them. But he's going to take them right into the heart of Samaria, right into Sychar, and they come to this very famous well that Jacob, uh, Jacob's well was over well over 100 feet deep. And Jesus is, we're told in verse 6, that Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was, he's a human being, he's thirsty, he's wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It's about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, for Jesus to speak to her is amazing. What is she doing here? Women, they, they usually do things together. They like to go to the bathroom together. Men don't do that, you know. Women would go to the well together, okay? That's just what you did. And you either went in the morning or you went in the evening, but you didn't go at noon because that was the heat of the day. The only reason you would be there by yourself at noon was if you were the stigma of the community. And you are alienated, alone, ostracized. You, you, you're ashamed, shame and you're a Samaritan and you're a woman that's been beaten down and she's a serial dater she's been having all these men and trying to find her well her 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 real satisfaction in life from men and she comes to this well and here's Jesus and she knows right off the bat that he is a Jew and he says to her give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy a food. The Samaritan woman said to it, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Like, you don't do that. What, what are you doing? Men don't talk to women, but J Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. That is like the absolute no-no. You're breaking all traditions to do this. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So for Jesus to say, give me a drink, he's actually asking to put his Jewish lips on her Samaritan cup. And you don't do that. Because that would mean that you're unclean. But Jesus is going to make her clean and not himself unclean. And Jesus now is going to do a little fishing. He's going to pique her interest. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Isn't that great? It's kind of like as a parent, you might say to your kids, if you knew what was in the freezer or fridge for dessert, you might finish your supper. <laughs> You're piquing their interest, right? You're trying to get them to finish their dinner so they can get something even better that they don't even know about yet. There's ways that we can do this when we talk to people how to evangelize. Let's say you help somebody. And they're going to wonder, why are you helping me? Why are you doing this? Why are you stop? Why are you doing this? 
we should have a few lines maybe we could think in advance, like to pique their interest. Say, really, this is nothing. Somebody once helped me long ago that was so much greater in my need that I just can't help but help others. And just leave it with that. See if they take the bait. Really? Tell me your story. Then you're, then you're into the gospel. How about somebody overpays you at the register? They give you too much money. Or you're tempted to do something that's unethical. Years ago, I would have taken that. But something happened in my life, and I don't do that anymore. Just leave it at that. You're piquing their interest. Now you're, you're begging for them to say, well, well, what happened? Tell me your story. And then, then you're into the gospel. There's questions we can use like this that will pique people's interest. If what you just said differed than what the Bible said, would you want to know? Don't just give them a Bible verse, but, you know, bait the question. They, they give their world. You say, you know, if that was different than what the Bible said, would you want to know? If they say no, I honor that. But if they say yes, then you're off and going. There's ways that we can do that. Jesus was the master, and he is offering living water. And so this banter goes back and forth, and it's like a poker game. It's like ante up, ante up, ante up. I call your bluff, I call your bluff. That's what's going on here. So the word you is just flying back and forth. If you knew the gift of God, who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you the living water. And the woman says, well, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where'd you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I call your bluff. I ante up and I throw my three chips. I call your bluff. You think you're greater than Jacob? Who do you think you are? The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus antes up again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. You see, he's talking about a different type of water. This is water for the soul that will satisfy you forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. An artesian well that just keeps coming and coming, satisfying the soul. The woman said, I mean, now she's, all right, I call it. Give me this water so I'll never be thirsty again. Provide the goods that you're, that you're saying that, you, that you've got. Let's see what you got, Jesus. Give me this water. She, she's peaked. She's interested. Give me this water so I won't have to come here anymore to draw water. It'll make my life easier. Make my life better. Jesus says to her, okay, go. Call your husband and come here. He just called, called it too. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Ouch. Isn't this interesting thing about Jesus that when you think about Psalm 139, you know when I sit, you know when I rise, you know a word on my tongue before I ever say it. Psalm 139 is Jesus. Jesus 
is the fulfillment of Psalm 139. Every little thing about me, I can't hide from you. If I go to the, to the far ends of the earth, to the, to the far side of the sea, you're there. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, you're there. You're everywhere. You know me thoroughly. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, is what the psalmist said. And Jesus is looking at the Samaritan woman. And just like Nathaniel under the fig tree, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel was probably praying to God. And here Jesus comes along and says, I saw you praying under the fig tree. And if you're Nathaniel, you're having that, that self-quake moment. This is what Tim Keller calls a self-quake. She's starting to have a self-quake that, whoa, you know way too much about me. Jesus knows all of our shame. All of us have a bad side to our story, and this is her bad side. And he lovingly has to confront her for her to want the water you have to recognize that you've been drinking, as, the, as Jeremiah says, from these broken cisterns that hold no water, this idea of salt water. You drink from salt water and it will kill you. Yet you think, I'm so thirsty, this will satisfy me, but salt water will kill you. And she's been drinking from the salt water of relationships, thinking that relationships would satisfy her soul, her deep need of her soul, and these men aren't delivering the goods. And so she says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's pretty, she's pretty smart, isn't she? Yeah. Hello. <laughs> I mean, what you're going to see in this text as we go through it is that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. It's going to move from prophet, priest, to king. So here, she's, she, she's got the first understanding that you're a prophet. You speak the word and you're, you're given insights from God into things that normal people do not know and you're proclaiming them. So she tries to divert the subject, which is an important subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. I mean, she's right there at Mount Gerizim. It's right there. And Mount Gerizim is pretty important because that's where all the blessings came when they did the blessings in, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and they, they, and they give the blessings and the curses and the blessings were from Mount Gerizim and that's reiterated in Joshua 8 where they reaffirm the blessings of Mount Gerizim and that's where, where uh, Abraham and, and Isaac, they had built altars and worshiped the Lord right there at Gerizim. So they thought this is where the presence of God is, is at Mount Gerizim and this is where we've built the temple, a rival temple to the one that's in Jerusalem where the Jews worship because they've got the rest of the Old Testament. They only stopped at the first five books were the Samaritans. They stopped at the first five books. But they knew enough knowledge that God had met his people in Mount Gerizim, but the rest of the Old Testament has the emphasis on Jerusalem. And so she thought she just posed this question to Jesus. Where, where, let's see here. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say it's in Jerusalem, in a place where people ought to worship, and he's moving away from Jerusalem, heading north, so she probably thought, you must be coming here, this must be the place. And so Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know because your worship is incomplete. You only got the first five books of the Bible. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of the Old Testament, we're told in Romans 3.1. And Jesus himself is a Jew through and through. But the hour is coming and is now here. 
And the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, with their hearts, with their minds. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He's seeking such people this morning in this room. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, with all their hearts, all their minds. The woman said to Him, as she hears this, she thought she'd just dive into the sea of skepticism, which is this is where usually most arguments end. Well, you know, we can't solve this through politics. We can't figure this out. Someday, maybe it'll all work out. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, which is pretty amazing. She's only got the Torah, the first five books, yet she knows Messiah is coming. I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, the anointed one. When, when he comes... He'll tell us all things. Thank you, appreciate your words, but when the Messiah comes, he'll answer these questions. Nice try, Jesus. And Jesus says one of the most profound sayings. As you know, the Gospel of John is really big into these I am statements, ego, ego, amy statements. Jesus said to her, ego, amy. I am, literally, I am the one who is speaking to you. I am the one who's speaking to you. I mean, wow. I mean, she, this is where she has a self-quake, okay? This is the end of scene one. There's three scenes to this story. So end of scene one, if this is a play, whoop, the lights drop. And to see one, disciples come back at that moment. They, they come on in and they've missed this conversation. And this woman has just had her whole, her, her life has just been, re she's seen all the stuff that, about her past that he knows. And she's just learned about worship. And she's had a conversation face to face with the Messiah. Needless to say, she forgot all about her water pot. She left her water pot and went right into town. She forgot all about her water pot. Which is really interesting because when God becomes important to us, this, the proximates and the secondary things, they peel away. What I mean by that is this. We tend to live in our world for, we always live for the proximates and the, and the things that are secondary. And what I mean by that is like, like we went on this elders retreat and it would have been just so easy just to dive into all the proximate things that we need to change in the church, secondary things. They're secondary, they're not really proximate. How are God's people doing? Are they praying? Are we praying as a church? Are we meeting one another's needs? Are we loving one another? Are our shepherds following up on our sheep and we're gonna do a better job? We've got new lists and we're, we're gonna, that was one of the things we're working on. But the secondary things are like all the things like, um, you know, let's make the look a little nicer and make things look more and more updated and, and more social media presence and all of these kind of things are, are very secondary because none of them are gonna change anybody's life in and of themselves, yet they're very important. Those secondary things are very important, but they're not ultimate. And so much of what we do day to day is, you know, what's going to make, you know, my company better is 
often we just run to the proximates, the secondary things. We clean it up, we make, but we're not fixing anything on an ultimate level. Jesus comes at this tier and changes everything here. And then all of a sudden, the proximates all of a sudden just were like, I just completely forgot my water pot. I mean, I forgot. She went there at noon. It was, you know, it was hot, but she just forgot all about the water pot. She just went cruised on into town to, to go tell her friends that she's, she's experienced the Lord. Has the Lord done that to you? Where the, where the, the proximates fade away? And I actually want to read my Bible before I go to work. Because primary things are more important than secondary things. I I need to start praying more for my family and for the church because ultimate things are more important than proximate things because God has gotten bigger and reoriented priorities that now the ultimate is changing the proximate and ultimate's actually becoming ultimate. We tend to just live for all the proximate things. The latest movie, the football game, basketball game, all these things, they're diversions, they're, they're fun, but they're not ultimate. They're not gonna change you. She got changed because she met the Lord. I hope that's happening to us. And so, end of scene one, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. I mean, they're marveling. He's talking with a woman, but they know she's a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? It's almost like it was the unspoken spoken. It was the pink elephant in the room that everybody knew this was socially awkward and we can't believe Jesus is doing that. But how do we rebuke Jesus that you should never do this? Jesus, what are you doing? Like nobody told him, but we all knew like, man, what's he doing? I mean, isn't it amazing this passage? Everybody's on a mission. Everybody's on a mission. The disciples are on a mission to get food. Woman's on a mission to get water. Jesus is on a mission to get the woman. And she's going to turn around and use the woman to reach all the people in the village. And the, Jesus, and the disciples just went into the village and said, no gospel, nothing, because they're living for secondary things and proximate things, know nothing about ultimate things. And Jesus got to show the disciples how to live for ultimate things so now they can lift up their eyes, look at the fields, white under harvest. Here they come. Here come the Samaritans. There's your job. Ultimates. Quit living for proximates. Your life's got to change. And Jesus is going to turn everything upside down in this chapter. So the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. We're living for proximates. Aren't you hungry? Eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He's got ultimate on the brain. Disciples said to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? They're in the proximates. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Big theme in John, Jesus has come to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his will. And what was the will of him who sent me? To lose none, all that the Father has given me. And I'll raise him up at the last day. And this woman was one of the ones that the Father had given him. And he's excited to bring her into the kingdom. And so, this scene too is getting exciting. Woman's gone into town. Jesus is alone with the disciples. And here's our parable. Best I can do to work this into our sermon series here. (laughs) Do not yet say there are four months, then comes the harvest. Don't think proximately. You gotta look differently. 
I know it's December, probably when he's writing this, and, and the harvest isn't until late spring, and you're going to look at those fields, and you're not really seeing any harvest, but I'm telling you right now, don't say there are four months and then yet the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. Because we're told in verse 30 that they went out of the town and were coming to him. I think I skipped over that, didn't I? It says, the woman left the water jar, went into town, said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What a great evangelism message. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. I mean, that's all they gossiped about in town. Everything was whispered, and then she comes and proclaims it publicly. I mean, she was the gossip. In a culture like that, I mean, when, it, when she walked into a room, do you think it got quiet or loud? Deathly quiet. She would stop any conversation. And now she comes in a changed woman and says, come see a man who, who knows everything about me. Come with me. Can this be the Christ? Sometimes the best evangelism method is, is not to toot your horn about how great you are, but look what the Lord has done to change you. And look who he saves. And it says they went out of the town and were coming to him. So when he says, lift up your eyes, the fields are white under the harvest, he's saying, here they come. There's the ultimate. There's the food. There's your job. He's got to teach these disciples a whole new way of looking at the world. Because how do they see the world? They see it through their prejudice, their ethnocentric thinking. And their thinking was, I can't wait to get out of Samaria. What are we doing, Jesus? And I don't want to go into town and get this food and we'll get it for you, but we got to get out of here as soon as we can. This is not the place where we should be doing ministry. One of the things we looked at on the elders' retreat was just looking at our community, lifting up our eyes. How is our community changing? It is, it is just amazing. If you just look at the, we looked at Rockville, Gaithersburg, Germantown, Clarksburg, Damascus only, and the demographics, and how much things have changed in 15 years, between year 2000 and year 2015. The Asian population and the Hispanic population has almost quadrupled in all the areas I just mentioned. Okay? And then the black population has almost doubled and the white population has stayed the same or shrunk in 15 years. So the leading people group in Clarksburg is Asian. That was new news. 29% of the people who live in Durwood are Asian. 50% of the people in most of the areas, Rockville, Gaithersburg, Germantown, do not speak English in the home. Either 48 to 50%. No wonder, like, we're doing this ESL and we wonder, well, we're getting a lot more Asians than Hispanics. And it was like, oh, hello, if we do the demographics, most of the people, more people live around here are more Asian. Does that excite you? I mean, we're 75% white. That's our church. We're about 25% diversity. We gotta love all the people that God brings to us. 
Our community is changing. And we're going to have to change with it in contextualization. And that's some of the stuff we're wrestling with as elders. We had some pretty spirited discussions along those lines. But it was really good and helpful for us to think about what Jesus is thinking about here. Jesus loved the multitudes. He loved the people. Lift up your eyes. See the fields are white for harvest. Are you the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together? What Jesus is saying is, when usually he speaks of the harvest, he's speaking of his return. And when he returns, that's the, now the harvest has come. But Jesus is saying, actually, I'm ushering the kingdom in now. And now that I've already come, I've already sown this seed and you guys get to reap. Here they come. They're coming towards us right now. And the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. I'm rejoicing because I sowed it and you get to rejoice because you're reaping it. And we get to rejoice together and look who God is bringing to himself. And so there's this mutual rejoicing. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. All the prophets have spoken. They've given the word of God. And now we get to reap as we proclaim that word and plant further seeds. And God is bringing and making a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And he's bringing the nations to us. We were surprised looking at with these demographics, seeing some of the largest ancestry groups in some of the areas around here, huge Nigerian population, huge population from El Salvador and Gaithersburg, Ni Nigerian in uh, Clarksburg actually too. There's a lot of different groups of people that God is bringing into this area. And it's wise for us to know, okay, who is here and how do we strategically reach them? Obviously, our ESL ministry is very, very important. And you guys that are doing that ministry, that's a blessing. It's a blessing to be here for an elders meeting and see different nations represented. And we're teaching them English. We're loving them. As we love them, we get to share life with them. And as we share life with them, we share what's most important to us. And one of those things, obviously, is Jesus. So Jesus is telling them and, and getting the disciples to lift up their eyes. And now we see, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. They asked him to stay. Now think about this. I mean, how much... Walls are going down here. That Jesus encounters this woman and speaks to her. He crosses that pain threshold of engaging somebody that's really different than him and engages. And now, these two people have, these groups, they, they, there is centuries of hatred and animosity. You remember that when the Assyrians conquered northern Israel in 722 BC, the northern part of Israel assimilated and started to marry the pagan culture, the Assyrians, and they became the Samaritans. So in the Jews' mind, they're worse than Gentiles. You're worse than Gentiles because you're the ones that 
compromised. And so you're even worse than them because it's your fault that we're starting to become like them. So you're, you're the real problem. So the real hatred was Samaritans and Jews, long century standing. And this is like Jesus walking onto a school bus as a white man in 1950 and sitting in the back. You didn't do that in 1950 in the South on a school bus. But Jesus just walks right into, into this thick tension where there's cultural norms and he sits in the back of the bus and says, here I am, and starts a conversation. What Steve Hudson did when he went over to Emory Grove United Methodist Church, an all-black church, after the Charleston shooting was a pretty significant thing in breaking down walls. He was scared to go into that church, but he wanted to say, I identify with you, and I feel, I want to share that it was awful what happened in Charleston. And when he went in there, they were scared. I mean, the pastor says his phone just started lighting up with texts from all the women in the church because it was all women and a white man walked into a church. It's all black women right after the Charleston shooting where a white man went in and shot up a prayer meeting. And so when Steve, I don't even know if he's here today. He didn't know I was going to talk about, okay. That was a significant thing because it helped a lot of others of us to open up our eyes. It started a lot of conversations and I'll tell you, the first time I went over there to Bible study with Steve, I was a bit nervous, first time going in that church. First time I went into the ICOG, just dropping off my daughter to sing in the choir. I was a little nervous, because it's mainly a black church. They don't look like me. They're different than me. And we have certain stereotypes, and, and when people are different than us, we tend to be afraid, and we don't move towards them. We try to pull back. Jesus didn't do that. He went to them. That's what we have to do. And there's some times where, I mean, nobody thinks that they really have these stereotypes. And we do. I told a Mecca story this week that I, I still feel terrible about. And it was a Sunday night, and I came back from some church event, and I filled up my car at the Liberty Station, and it was rain and it was a little bit cold. And there was a single mother and her child, and they were black. And they had a flat tire. And they needed my help. But the car was a Mercedes. And I thought, this thing's probably, it has a locking lug nut. It's going to be hard to do. It's cold. I'm dressed up, kind of. It was all these excuses, but I judged them. And the reason I judged them was because I thought, you should have left more margin because you've got this Mercedes, but you don't have roadside assistance. Basically, just back the car up is what I told him, so you can change this tire, and I drove off. It was like the Lord had sent this person to me to help him. I've helped other people, but that one, I blew it. And, and as a result, when I see stuff like that now, I want to make amends for the terrible way that I judged them. And imagine, what was she thinking when I left? What do you think she was thinking? <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Jerk, yeah. 
it was a risk for her to come to me and talk to me. It was a risk. And she got white rejection like she'd never seen it. It's terrible. But I wanted to stay dry. It was going to mess up my day. I was going to get really wet. And it was going to be some work. And so I was the Levite that passed by on the other side. So when we did this confession of sin today, it was real for me. I hope it was real for you because we do this. We do this kind of thing. Jesus never did that kind of thing. And he restores and gives value to this woman that nobody gave value to and she was just being used and abused by men. And he restores her. And he restores her dignity. And now it creates a revival and all these Samaritans are getting saved. And guess what they say? As you read through this chapter, you, you realize what Jesus is giving us a blueprint of missions because Jesus is showing he's prophet, but he's also priest. He is the one that, that is the temple now. You don't have to worship in some mountain. He is it. But then he, he shows that he is the king because they say to him, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, for now we know this is indeed the savior of the world. He's the king, and he's the savior of the world from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and Jesus is showing how to love Samaritans. And then, in two days, he goes to Galilee and heals a nobleman's son, which was a Gentile official, and heals his son, so he's giving us the blueprint of how he's the savior of the world. He's no longer just a Jewish Messiah, he's everybody's Messiah, and I hope he's your Messiah this morning. And this is why I, I preach with notes, because I go way too long. So let me pray for us, because we went long today. Father, we need you. We recognize that we do judge others of whether they have value or not whether they're important or not, whether we should help them or not. And Lord, our grid is so often just full of selfishness. It's full of what will help us. I do that all the time. I ask that you'd forgive me. And I ask that you'd forgive each of us here, that we would live for ultimates, that we would live for you and your glory and your kingdom, and that we would see our neighbors different, that we'd see our neighborhoods and all the people that you're bringing into our life and giving us opportunity. And thank you for restoring our dignity, taking away our shame, and loving us despite our sin and our past and our failures. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.